five years ago, surrogates were getting around forty dollars to $45,000 for doing a journey of surrogacy. And now they're getting anywhere between forty-five dollars and $50,000. So the cost has gone up dramatically, but the compensation stayed pretty much relevant to Alcola, right? The cost of living adjustments. And that system's just not right. I'm Mark Peter Davis, Managing Partner of Interplay, and I'm on a mission to help entrepreneurs advance society. This podcast is part of that effort. On today's episode, I chat with Brian Levine, the founder and CEO of Nodal. Nodal is a marketplace that matches surrogates with families that want to have children. Their mission is significant because they aim to reduce the time and cost required to secure a surrogate by cutting out the middlemen who currently control the market. If they succeed, they will literally help more families have children. There's a lot of nuance in this market. We discuss the stigmas associated with surrogacy, the impact of Roe v. Wade being overturned, and the challenges caused by profiteering in the overall healthcare system. If you're interested in healthcare, this is a great one for you. Enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Fire on Marketing. Fire on Marketing is a full-service marketing firm providing high-quality, cost-effective solutions. They support companies in developing websites, creating content, email marketing, optimizing SEO, and managing ad campaigns on social media, Google, and beyond. What's unique about their approach is that they connect all of the marketing activities together to create a unified conversion loop and generate higher yield for clients. If you're interested in learning more, visit fireonmarketing.com. What's up, Brian? Thanks for being here today. Well, thanks for having me, Mark. I appreciate it. Could you start off by giving us an overview of Nodal? Absolutely. So um, Nodal is an online platform that helps match intended parents, the people who are hoping to grow and start a family, with gestational carriers, the people who are doing the heavy lifting, um, who are going to be the surrogates to help a family um, achieve their goal. Why did you start this company? Because it, I know the surrogate business has been there for a while. Why did it need a new player? Great question. So as a practicing fertility doctor, one of the toughest conversations I had to have with a patient was to tell them that we need to go down the surrogacy pathway. Typically, I was having a conversation after they had already had negative embryo transfers, right? They put embryos back inside of themselves and they haven't worked. Sometimes I had to have this conversation because just the biology didn't work. Single man, gay male couple, for example, or maybe as a woman who didn't have a uterus, or she was she had uterine cancer, or she couldn't be pregnant, or couldn't stay pregnant. But it was almost regardless of the reason that we were having the conversation, the conversation always started with, we're about to have a terrible one. And the reason is that surrogacy has become price prohibitive and time prohibitive. It's actually crazy to think about it this way, but over the last five years, the cost of surrogacy has outpaced any of the average Americans being able to afford it. Surrogacy used to be around $75,000 five years ago. That was a cost of having someone help manage your case and whatnot. Now we're hearing prices from patients of 150, 200, 250. So the costs are high, the supply is pretty constant, the demand is pretty high, and I thought that was ripe for technology to help disrupt this broken system. What's driving that cost? Is it the money being paid to the surrogate mother or some other entity? So I wish we were talking about how well surrogates are paid. Like, right. I wish this entire conversation was about the people who are 
putting themselves at risk, their families at risk, being paid so well, and that's driving the cost. But it's not. In fact, much of the cost associated with surrogacy is going to the agency or the broker or the middleman, the person who helps make the match, the person who helps you find that surrogate. And it's unfortunate because five years ago, surrogates were getting around forty dollars to $45,000 a year, or sorry, forty dollars to $45,000 for doing a journey of surrogacy. And now they're getting anywhere between forty-five dollars and $50,000. So the cost has gone up dramatically, but the compensation stayed pretty much relevant to a COLA, right? The cost of living adjustments. And that system's just not right. So all the money was going to the agency in the middle. Yeah, right. it's unfortunate, what but it's the, the broker. Yeah, what does the broker do? Why, why is the broker uh, a value in this? Why can't you just post on LinkedIn or Facebook and find a surrogate? So uh, I'll ask you a question, which is um, how, how much do you think about the broker who sold you your house or your apartment? Um, do you really value them that much? Probably not, um, right? Like people go through brokerage experiences all the time. And if you found out that your broker was getting this crazy commission on your house, you would try to figure out a way to work around it. But the thing is, the difference between buying a house is that we're talking about starting a family, right? We're talking about something that is so important that people put such a premium on that these brokerages have now essentially in, started using fear-mongering and supply and demand economics have taken hold. So when they say that the resources are finite, there's only a certain number of surrogates that are available. When they say that their resources are finite, right? They can only handle so many cases a year. Cost goes up because demand keeps growing. And it's unfortunate to say that the brokers who really aren't the ones who are taking any of the risk or liability are the ones who are taking the lion's share of the money, which is what's making it so hard for so many people to start a family or just grow a family. Now, the, comparing this to a, a real estate broker, and we can have that debate too, but that's apples and oranges, right? They're getting five, I don't know what it is, maybe 10% of a transaction. You're talking about close to 80 in the extreme. <laughs> 80% yeah. going to the broker in a surrogacy market. That's bananas. It's a it's totally, nuts. yeah. It, it's absolutely nuts. And the truth is, you're right. It is apples to oranges. Um, your broker who sells you your house or apartment sells you a room. Brokers who are helping you find a surrogate are helping you find a womb. That's the only similarities that we can find. Um, the truth is, the cost of the brokerage that is out there today is being masked or even masqueraded around customer service. But that customer service is actually ultimately going back to the clinic. People like me, the doctors who actually take care of patients are ultimately responsible for approving that surrogate to be the one to receive the embryo, making sure that she's being treated in an equitable manner, making sure that the embryo transfer is done without incident, making sure that pregnancy is managed. So here you are paying this very big premium to have a brokerage firm tell you that they do case management, when in reality, they're just kind of hooking you and then letting you know that it's a finite resource. And the only way to access that resource is through the brokers. Okay. I get it. Do the brokers do anything other than matchmaking? And if they just do matchmaking, is there some complexity to that beyond, you know, building a listing more or less, a directory? So, you know, the brokers and the, we, let's just call them agencies, right? Because that's the term mm. they prefer to be called. Um, the agencies do more than just making a match. What they're supposed to do is they're supposed to help guide both the intended parent and the surrogate equally to make sure that they're legally represented, to make sure that there are good contractual relationships that are occurring, right? You need to each have independent lawyers 
to make sure that the surrogate goes through all of her necessary screening and to kind of make sure they kind of go down the pathway that is prescribed to them um, in a meaningful way. In reality, I've never met a surrogate who's come to this office who's not motivated. They don't need an agency texting them to say, did you go to your appointment? Don't forget about your appointment. Sure, it might be nice that someone's booking them a hotel room. It might be nice that someone's booking them travel. But in reality, in this day and age, in this COVID environment, where we've all learned to work from home and to kind of bootstrap and hack whatever we need to do, the agencies are really just not needed in the same capacity for what they're charging. Okay. And so where does Nodal sit in this now? What part Amazing. of the process do you fit into? So, you know, the, the genesis of Nodal was based on my frustration, right? Like, I actually love my job as a fertility doctor. I love taking care of patients. I really enjoy helping people get pregnant and helping people who have had a lot of struggles get there. And I actually enjoy surrogacy journeys with people. But the reason I started Nodal is because people were signing up with an agency, giving a deposit, and then being told, hurry up and wait. And when they were being given a match for a potential surrogate, they were told, take this or wait. So what we found was that people felt like there was no choice. And the surrogates, when you start talking to them, going through the process, they felt like they had no voice and they had no choice, right? The people doing the heaviest lifting, the people taking the greatest risks, the people who are really helping to bring that reward forward, right? The reward is that family were being told, well, truth be told, you just got to kind of work with this family and you got to work with them. And some examples might be uh, many surrogates don't want to fly these days, right? They're concerned about COVID. There's concern about travel, but they're told, look, you might live in California, but you matched with a family in New York. So you have to go fly to New York to go do your embryo transfer. And little things like that add up. And when you're asking someone to assume some risks by being pregnant for someone else, you might want to let that surrogate feel like they have some voice in the process. So what Nodal has done is we've created a platform that is equitable. Think of it almost like a dating app in reverse, right? Almost like Bumble. Um, in a way, what we do is we actually present surrogates with profiles of intended parents. Mm. They get to see who they want to work with. What that does is that puts the onus back onto the intended parents, the people who are looking for a surrogate. It lets them put their best foot forward to describe why they're going on this journey, to describe why they need to do this. Actually, by doing this, by building a profile where the surrogates select who they want to work with, we know helps with buy-in. It helps the surrogates feel empowered. And if you're going to trust this woman to carry your pregnancy, don't you want her to feel empowered to carry your pregnancy? It also builds a really good relationship. What we allow the surrogates to do is to name their price. What do you want for your compensation? And we actually let the intended parents say what their budget is. So instead of an agency, which typically gets 20% of the compensation rate, right? So a surrogate might say that she wants $50,000, for example, for her compensation. So the agency is going to charge $60,000, the intended parent. Instead, what we say is the surrogate wants $50,000. Let's figure out how to get this done. And instead, what we find is that the intended parents can say what they feel comfortable paying. But little things like one embryo versus two embryos, little things like COVID vaccination status or not. Little things like travel all add up to be really big things. And what we're hoping to do is to build a platform together, both with intended parents and surrogates feeling like they are well represented and they're actually well protected by using tech um, and some pretty cool technology under the hood. Okay, that's awesome. So this 
this is going to bring down the overall cost of surrogacy for, you know, aspiring parents. Absolutely. Right? So I, I assume that's going to increase the overall demand for surrogacy. Do you see it driving kind of any sort of market imbalance or how do you see the market evolving in kind of a quantity level as you, as you make it more cost effective? Right. So what we're hoping to do is just be one little part of the journey. And that one little part is called the match. So what we're hoping to do is to help match people together, um, surrogates and intended parents, and then they can decide how they want to do that last mile, right? Do you want to use a commercial agency to help you do that? Do you want to use just a lawyer or whatnot? What we're actually doing is we're using a subscription model for our intended parents. We say that the match is valued at five, or sorry, at six thousand dollars, and the match itself is what is the ultimate like ticket, right? Like that's the that's what you're paying for is the match, and to be on the platform is about five hundred dollars a month. So you know that if you're on the platform for six months, what you'll need to do is to pay three thousand dollars at the end for the match to happen. $6,000 we think is very manageable, especially when many different agencies say that the cost of a match alone is between fifteen dollars and $20,000. So yes, we're driving down the cost in the very earliest steps and driving down that cost with complete transparency and helping to do that. Now, you also brought up something that's really interesting, demand. Demand right now is through the roof. But in fact, if you look at surrogacy today, it feels like a cottage industry. There's actually only about 5,000 births a year in America from surrogates. Hmm. Even though it feels like every single famous person who's in LA or New York and you know every single person who might own a space company in Texas is like using a surrogate here and there. In reality, the interest is about 8% of met need, which means 92% of the people who want to use a surrogate can't even afford to do it or can't even start the journey or can't even do the journey in the same year. And if actually, if you call agencies blindly and start asking them what percent of the people that say that they're interested go through with it, they tell you it's about 8% ultimately is how many intended parents get to go through this journey. What we hope to do is to remove one of the obstacles today, and that obstacle is cost. The second obstacle is actually an indirect obstacle. It's why I would say it's access. So many people don't even know where to get started, right? They don't even know how to do it. And what we hope to do is to be a voice a place where people can learn about surrogacy, a place where people can actually go to meet other people. And we, that's why we actually have a community that we're building of previous surrogates. That's awesome. Okay. So people go on, let's say they use your system and they match. Great. There's a lot of complexity that happens after that, right? You've got, you mentioned mm -hmm. already, there's legal contracts. This is a pretty significant legal transaction, right? There's all the medical care and everything else associated. How do they go from your platform through the rest of the journey? How do they, what do they do next? Great question. So the first part to know is that the other thing that agencies do quite well, although it's what they tell you is the biggest thing they do, is collecting medical records. We have technology under the hood that allows us to collect medical records that already exist today. Things such as billing codes and medication history and things like that. So while agencies are pulling paper records, which are then sent to clinics to ultimately be reviewed and approved, what we're doing is we're building a composite profile that clinics can ultimately see so they can understand who they're looking at in front of them as a surrogate. By having an up-to-date medical profile for that potential surrogate, what we're able to do is help limit some of those risks, but more importantly is to help people understand the risk of the legal transaction that's occurring, right? That contractual relationship that will be there. 
But once they're done with us, they go on to then a lawyer. And that's where it all needs to go. Surrogate and intended parents need separate lawyers. The lawyers then ultimately can either be the caseworkers or can have someone else. But you have to remember, to do all of this, you need a fertility clinic. And so it's all through the fertility clinics. It's a coordinated care. And we think it's a triangle, right? Nodal sits at the top, and then you have the lawyers and the clinics, and we all work together in helping these people achieve their goals. And how do people find the lawyers? Do they go from nodal to lawyers or nodal to clinic? What, what's the next step that kind of gets them in the system? Imagine once yeah, you get so to what the clinics, the lawyers, you're integrated, right? Everyone knows each other. So we them. actually never imagined this part is, so as we've been building out nodal, which um, launches in mid-August, um, what we've been learning very quickly is that lawyers are asking us if they can work with us. Um, you know, we asked two lawyers who then told two people because they right now feel like they can't penetrate this market. There are so many family lawyers who are out there who are untapped resources. In fact, most family lawyers will tell you that they want to stop doing divorces and they want to help more with surrogacy journeys. Um, it's actually probably one of the most enjoyable parts of their jobs. And so what we're helping to do is to give people access to family practice lawyers, to people who really know this law inside and out and are specialists um, and are willing to actually do this at a fair and balanced price. Okay. Awesome. Um, what does your industry need, right? When you look at this, you're obviously building a big solution here. There's probably other nooks and crannies where there's still some cobwebs. What else would you like people to come out and tweak and fix to make this even more streamlined? So I'd like people to have an understanding and compassion. Um, because I could tell you right now, one of the hardest conversations I have is with people like one of my daughter's teachers. He and his husband have been married for 10 years. They've been saving every single penny possible, tutoring, doing everything they can to collect extra money to just afford to have a child. For a single man or a gay male couple to, help, to have a family of their own with their own biology requires an egg donor, which is very expensive, and going through surrogacy. And I think that quite often we're not very good at talking to people about tough stuff. Many employers today are offering fertility benefits. I'm really lucky, right? I live in the state of New York where there is a mandate. If you have 100 employees or more, you need to have fertility benefits covered. But what happens if the fertility benefits still aren't enough? They don't cover egg donor. They don't cover surrogacy. In fact, there's one company in America that covers surrogacy at a value of $75,000. And today, that $75,000 is not enough for 100% of the agencies that are out there. And I think that actually, this all comes from a lack of compassion, a lack of understanding, lack of thinking about some of these pleasures that people have, right? You and I were talking about our kids just before this. Hmm. People just forget like these simple pleasures in life. And if we learned anything from this pandemic, it's like, it's okay to do well and do good at the same time, but don't forget to do good first. And so hopefully, the tweak that I hope is cultural, and people having a little more compassion, stop thinking about the bottom line. Okay, so you, you would say changing laws around healthcare and health insurance policies. Yeah, because I think it's actually discriminatory to be a gay man today who has a fertility benefit that they can't even afford to use or that's not even covering what they need. In fact, many of the fertility benefits that exist today have definitions in there where infertility is defined by age of the woman, right? Hmm. 35 or more trying for six months, 35 right. or less trying for a year. If you're so a what happens couple, to a gay man in that? What happens? Correct. 
they never meet the definition of infertility. So they never get covered. They never get to even use Mm -hmm. their fertility benefit. And that's just wrong. And what people do is they hide behind definitions um, without thinking about the compassion about how they just want a family. Now, I feel like surrogacy um, has some stigma around it. I've heard people kind of whisper that they used a surrogate before. um, And I could tell that they were sensitive about it. Yeah. What's causing that stigma in your mindset and what should happen there? So, I, you know, I think it's, it's an incredible question you just asked because it's like an iceberg, right? Like there's so much under the water that you just, it's hard to unpack it. But, you know, in the spirit of time uh, and to keep everyone still listening to this podcast, I'll just give you the high level, which is people are whispered about it because they don't know how to discuss it. In this country, it feels like surrogacy is something that's done by the rich and famous or the celebrities. It felt like it's something that's done cloaked in secrecy um, because it has to be that way. And sometimes it's for people, it's because you're not, you know, strong enough to be pregnant again, or you should have just carried your own. And, you know, people make these off-color comments without even realizing the impact of them. In reality, um, surrogacy is actually really complicated. (laughs) And it's actually a very complex topic that I wish more people talked about because I'm sure that for every person who's listening here, they know of someone or know someone who went through it. In fact, Gabrielle Union, um, Dwayne Wade's wife, did an unbelievable job discussing how hard it was for her as a black woman in California to go through surrogacy. Everyone looked at her saying, you should have no problem being pregnant. What's the matter with you? Why can't you be pregnant? And it was very hard for her to actually discuss it openly and get support. And she discusses this last year in a great article. But I think it's a lack of understanding. And because we don't talk about this as a mainstream way of reproducing, it kind of gets hushed. Okay. So it's, it's the fact that it's kind of not out there enough, right? I feel like even IVF uh, is a yeah. little taboo. Maybe in my pocket and my world and my generation, people are talking about it pretty openly. But I get the sense we're, bre- we're, we're breaking ground in doing that. Yeah. Um, but it, it, I don't hear a lot about surrogacy. And when I do that seems to still be on the taboo side. What would you, any, any learnings from kind of the evolution of stigma around IVF? IVF is uh, embryo transplant for, for folks who don't know that acronym. Um, any learning around how to kind of make this less stigmatized and more normal? So one of, the, one of the things that kind of blows people away is when they actually think about infertility, right? We spend our whole lives talking about, you know, from high school health, to you know, advertisements or whatnot, that if you have sex, you will be pregnant. And most likely you'll get HIV at the same time. So do not have unprotected sex and make sure you're on birth control. And so what we do is as a culture and as a society, we reinforce this misbelief that it is very easy to get pregnant. And that's why you need to use contraception you know, religiously and routinely. It's actually kind of ironic to say contraception and religiously in the same sentence. Um, but you know, we tell people to do this. And then when people try to get pregnant and they don't, they feel like a failure, right? They feel like this should have been so easy. And then when you start peeling back the layers of the onion and you tell people that 40% of the time is due to the woman and 40% of the time is due to the guy and 20% of the time it's either unknown or combined, they're like, wait a second. You mean to say that a guy can have millions of sperm and even though a woman has a finite number of eggs, 
it could still be the guy with the millions of sperm? And the answer is yeah. Like that guy could have sperm that looks like Michael Phelps, but swims like Ryan Lochte. And the truth is, male factor infertility is probably the big source of why so many people are quiet about IVF. A lot of guys don't know who to talk to about their abnormal sperm counts. They don't know how to talk to because we in this country liken sperm to sexual performance, which we liken to masculinity. Mm. And so, you know, it's a lot of culture. Hmm. Now, we've obviously had some pretty significant uh, political changes happening recently at the Supreme Court. Um, we had Roe v. Wade overturned. I'm sure there's a lot of things this has implications for in your world. But if we yeah. can narrow in, what does it mean for surrogacy? Does it have any direct line of impact on that? Yeah. So it has two direct impacts into surrogacy. The first one is, as a physician, I took an oath to do no harm. And you have to think about where the surrogate lives and how you're going to treat her. I think one of the positive impacts of overturning Roe v. Wade surrogacy is that doctors are going to push to transfer a single embryo that's genetically tested. By transferring a single embryo into a surrogate that's genetically tested, that's going to limit the risk of twins and triplets, and it's going to limit the need to do a termination of a pregnancy for a chromosomal abnormality, you know, Down syndrome or other genetic uh, issues that we screen for throughout pregnancy. So I actually think that's an unintended consequence. That's a good thing for surrogacy. Has it not the been tested before? Just to go down that rabbit hole for a second, or is not everyone doing the testing? And if so, why? Great question. So uh, I told you about 5,000 babies are born from surrogacy a year, but there's around 10,000 journeys, which means about a 50% success rate of embryo transfers. In my hands, in my clinic, my transfer success rate is over 70% for my patients. It's because my denominator is smaller because I'm only transferring genetically tested embryos. It is not the standard of care today in America. Many clinics offer genetic testing of embryos, but not everyone does it. And many people, when they're going down the surrogacy pathway, are not transferring the best embryos. They're transferring whatever they have left, right? You know, they've done a bunch of transfers into themselves and they haven't worked, for example. So they're transferring not their best embryo, but what remains. So what I hope is, as people recognize that terminations may be an issue, um, they'll try to reduce the risk or need for any of that, which is to genetically test an embryo and transfer one mm. at a time. Mm -hmm. The second comment about that is, though, I do think that the states are going to be reshuffling. So we never before in healthcare thought about trigger laws. And I don't know if you're familiar with this concept, but effectively, when you overturned a federal um, uh, law, the rules actually went back to the states. And each state had different mandates and controls of how they viewed this. And the trigger means that when this happened, you know, quid pro quo, this, then, that. And so what happened was you triggered um, you triggered the law and then ultimately went back to the states and the states say, hey, we don't allow this, we don't allow that. So there's a lot of reinterpretation. I think people like me who live in New York, people like you who live on a, the other river um, or the other side of the river, people who might live on the other coast are okay. Um, the middle of the country, I think we're going to see a lot of shifting and moving around to figure out what is this new landscape. But just remember, New York itself did not allow surrogacy until February of 2021. Surrogacy was illegal in New York State until February of 2021 when it was included in the budget by Governor Cuomo. Prior to that, I had no experience using a surrogate um, or transferring a surrogate in New York State. 
Are there other states where it's still illegal? What's the landscape of legality for surrogacy? Surrogacy is principal in 48 states. There are two states that are not. Currently, Nebraska and Louisiana are the two places where it is still not permissible where the contracts will hold. Um, there is also a general cultural climate that people don't like it when a surrogate lives in the state of Michigan. Um, due to some of the, the laws are a little bit different there about um, the contracts and how they're viewed. But otherwise, 47 states in America, um, it's open and protected. Hmm. Okay. So this is a national thing now. So New York was a little late to the game from what you're describing. New York was late to the game because it was the first to the game. So what happened was that there was a Supreme Court case of Baby M in the mid-80s, which was the result of what's called traditional surrogacy. This actually meant it was the same person's egg and the same person's uterus. So they did an insemination and they took sperm from a male partner and put it aside this woman and she carried a pregnancy. Ultimately, there was a question about if this surrogate could keep the baby or not. And because the law was tested in New York State and the pregnancy originated from New York State, ultimately the New York State legislature decided to ban surrogacy um, for the entire length of my career until a year ago. Got it. Okay. Now, broadly, you're in healthcare, right? And there's, we've had this conversation on this pod before with other folks, and I love getting different perspectives on it. It feels like our healthcare system's a mess, yeah. right? It just, there's so much of it that as a consumer of it, my mind is blown. I mean, my, we talked about this before, my kid got stitches and a hospital of good prestige tried to charge us $60,000 for the stitches, something crazy. And they're just <laughs> anticipating certain number of rejections and they're it's a negotiating item like being in a flea market right which is bizarre right when there's so many other things that are kind of list price and the prices are reasonable how do you feel about the overall healthcare system in its current state and what's broken so i mean look this could be many hours and many beers um to go through this one at a very high level I think there's two main issues in American healthcare today. One is we have a fractured consumer-oriented healthcare system. And what I mean by that is you go to one doctor for one thing, and then someone has an app for another thing, and there's another way to do another thing. And so you keep going to this like consumer-level marketing at people. And the example would be a big company that just basically got shut down, who we found out was a pill mill, right? Who was talking about mental health. We all were super excited for it, but in reality, was a company that just allowed easy access to ADHD medications and stimulants and whatnot. And someone could be on a ton of Ritalin or Adderall, and their internist has no idea. Mm. They could show up in an ER with palpitations or a racing heart rate, and nobody knows why. And they might got a million dollar workup, or if they just found out that they, you know, had downloaded, you know, cerebral and they were getting pills very easily or whatnot. Like that's the problem with our healthcare system is that side. The other side is, um, I do think private equity's involvement in healthcare has led to a lot of trimming of the fat as they like to call it. Um, but that fat was actually protective. When you start looking at a doctor's conversion rate, when you start looking at a doctor's profitability, when you start treating something that is so human, as a business, and you start putting metrics of business onto something that's relationship-based, you can't expect the system to not break. You talk to some of the dermatologists who are in California, they tell you that they love their jobs until 
there was a private equity investment and the honeymoon phase was over. The new office, the new equipment, it was all awesome. But now all of a sudden, instead of seeing 40 patients in a day, they're seeing 75 patients in a day. They're behind on their notes. They're not getting home any easier. And they're just waiting for the next flip to be able to cash out. And what you're finding is that actually the people who are doing the heavy lifting, like the surrogates in our model, um, are not the ones that are being compensated fairly. And it's this middleman. What I hope to see is I hope that people take a step back. Um, they realize that they actually can all get sick. Um, and we can realize, hopefully, that our healthcare system is sick. And what I hope people start doing is holding their insurance companies accountable. So, for example, in your scenario where stitches somehow cost $60,000 and a tablet of Tylenol costs $1,000. And instead of saying to the hospital, how does this happen? And the hospital gives you an answer, which is, well, we're a business and we have to operate. You just say, look, if McDonald's charges me $60,000 for their hamburgers, I'm just not going to eat them anymore. And I'm just going to go to Burger King where I can have it my way. Um, and I think if we actually allow the consumerism to go the other direction, which is to understand that patients have choice and optionality, and we hold insurance companies accountable, just like we hold hospitals accountable, maybe we can fix the system. It's a little sticky though, right? Because like you said, it's a relationship business, right? You, you find your doctor, you kind of just do what they tell you. It's all very scary and opaque to the average consumer. There's a major information asymmetry between the medical staff and the patient. And there's geographical limitations. So I, I look at all this and it's, it is a mess. Um, the private equity folks who are out there buying the hospitals are doing what they're supposed to do for their shareholders. The question is like, you know, if you're running a hospital just for a bottom line and not for health results, what are we doing? Right. There's, well, there's it's a question for the whole system. Where is capitalism yeah, going too far? You know, I had this great conversation with a private equity individual a few weeks ago. And I said to them, look, how much PE can the healthcare system handle? Um, and his answer to me is, well, we didn't break veterinary medicine yet, did we? Um, and right, like veterinary clinics are another great PE model where they realize that Pet owners will pay almost anything for their animals, mm -hmm. right? They'll pay almost anything to help their animals. And so there's now these plans, like your doctor need, or your dog or cat needs an annual x-ray, um, or they need to get like these annual exams to happen and it needs to include this and whatnot. And so this person was saying, look, the same thing's going to happen in human healthcare. You'll push it and hopefully it won't break and we'll just keep pushing. That's wrong. Um, what I think we ultimately should be saying is I want to go to the best doctor. I don't want to feel sick. I don't want to feel, you know, tied to a pill or whatnot. And so I think from a big picture perspective, I would love to see the cost go down. I actually think I'd be a much happier doctor if I didn't have to talk to patients every single day about their rejections and having to get on the phone with United or Anthem or Sigma to go, you know, do a peer to peer to get an appeal to fight for my patients. Got it. Well, you've taken an extraordinary path in that you're uh, an entrepreneurial. Uh, doctor. What was your path to get here? How did this come about? So like I said, dude, it came from a frustration. Um, but the truth is actually started with my friend, John Oranger, the founder of Shutterstock. Um, John Oranger and Ed Lando, um, who's behind like Misfit Market and Goody, um, had actually started an incubator in Florida. And so I read about it. Um, and I reached out to John to say, hey, congratulations, this looks cool. Hoping maybe he would tap me to be an advisor or something on their healthcare stuff. Um, 
And instead, he says to me, why don't you tell me some of the most exciting things that you're seeing in healthcare today? Um, we, we would love to make some investments. So tell us what's exciting you. I told him I thought the system was broken. I told him that the most exciting thing in IVF is a bunch of bros who went to either HBS or Wharton, and they let you know within the first five minutes that they did. Um, and that they're dealing with the arbitrage of IVF, which in the end of the day means nothing to patients, but it's very exciting to them. And I was like, look, the system is weird um, and there's nothing good out there. So John in true John fashion says to me, well, this conversation isn't going very well, um, but I have 15 minutes left to talk to you. Why don't you tell me what annoys you? And that's mm -hmm. how Nodal came up. I talked about how Nodal, which actually it's called Nodal because it's a bunch of nodes. It's a bunch of different points of communication and information that we're connecting together. I said to them, look, surrogacy is disparate and it's expensive and it's price prohibitive and time prohibitive and people don't know where to go. So John said to me, great, how do we fix it? I told him, I don't know, you're gonna need money and tech. And he was perfect. Let's go get the money and let's build the tech. And that's literally how we got started a year ago. That's awesome. Do you think medical school prepared you for business? No. So, um, I loved my medical school experience, despite almost failing out in the fourth year. Um, what was happening when there? I was in med? Yeah. So when I was in med school, um, what I realized was that I spent my entire life being very comfortable. I grew up in a house with a mom who was a teacher, a dad who was a business guy. Um, went to med school; it was amazing. Um, but I actually never really got challenged with understanding who I am or where I'm from or what I do. So an opportunity arose to actually go to NYU's campus in Accra, Ghana. Um, and I said, I'd like to go. My advisors and the deans were all like, you can't go to Ghana. You have to go take more electives. I was like, look, I promise you, I'll spend the rest of my life taking care of patients. I promise you, I will take care of patients. But right now, I need to learn what it's like to be uncomfortable in my own skin. I need to learn what it's like to be in a new environment where I don't know a person. I don't have a resource. I need to learn what it's like to learn something new. So literally Labor Day, I get on an airplane, fly to Ghana. It took about six weeks until I got a phone call um, from the dean's office saying that I had to come home or I wouldn't be able to graduate because I haven't taken my electives. And I wasn't even interviewing for residency, which I was supposed to be doing during that time. And instead, when I was there, I built a network on cell phones um, to connect doctors in Ghana. And it was through real world experience that actually was then ultimately backed by Microsoft. Um, and I went back to see the launch of it in March of that year where I spent four months in Ghana learning how to be uncomfortable, to make new friends in a new environment, to learn how to kind of bootstrap something. But I came back with a skill set that I think I'm using today for Nodal. And yeah. yeah, thank God I didn't fail out. Like, thank God I actually got board certified and got all that stuff done. Um, but most importantly is thank God I got pushed and challenged. That's awesome. You know, going out and having those experiences, it feels like they do give you the toolkit to go out and build companies later. But there is some predisposition, right? People, it sounds like you've always, you've got a little bit of an innovator's bone. Uh, it's not just everyone who goes out to a different place and then decides to build a you know, mobile network. So. Yeah, I think um, I'm the guy who always wanted to know why the VCR was blinking 12 as a kid. Mm -hmm. um, and then I wanted to figure out if you really could take it apart and put it back together. Somehow I always had extra screws at the end. Um, and every so often there'd be smoke in the middle of watching Goonies. Um, but in reality, I think, you know, I'm a tinkerer and mm -hmm. I'm not happy with the status quo. And I think my entrepreneurial spirit comes with the fact that if you don't take a chance, then when are you going to do it? Right. Now, did, do they have any business classes in medical school? I mean, every, <laughs> almost every doctor out there 
has a business com- function, a component to what they do. Is there any training for that? So it, you'll be shocked to learn that there's not even one class, let alone a hmm. course that's a semester or a month. Um, you can go nothing through about all management, your training. You nothing. know, coaching people, nothing? Nothing, nothing, nothing at all. In fact, I've probably learned more about, you know, reading, uh, about how to negotiate, about how to be a leader, learning from experience, learning from my own mistakes on the job training. Um, but you can literally graduate from residency and being told you can now be a business owner without ever knowing how to run a business. And the problem is that as a physician, it is so, I would say, onerous at times to take care of complex patients. But imagine taking care of a complex business um, and a business that you're trying to figure it out. And so I think that if we taught doctors how to be business individuals, if we taught doctors what are the pitfalls of being a business owner, you probably would see better medicine being practiced um, instead of PE coming in and buying up all these practices where they actually tell doctors, first and foremost, we will run your business. You be the doctor, we'll be the business. Yeah, it seems like we're talking about this industry being mismanaged and we're not teaching the primary leaders in it to manage. Yeah, and I'd say even in, you know, surrogacy world, the biggest agencies are owned by private equity. Um, so here you, you have these, these lawyers who are out there who started trying to help people. They realized that they were really good as a lawyer. As a lawyer, then they built a little network. That little network consolidated into what they called an agency. And then they got so tired of operating the business side, they wanted to just take care of the people who were trying to go through surrogacy that they allowed PE to enter. I got it. That makes a lot of sense. So look, you've been, uh, you, you've made this transition to being an entrepreneur. You're kind of learning it on your, as you go. Um, yeah. what's the most important thing you've picked up along the way? What have you learned? So, you know, I started this office here with my four partners in my fertility practice with just me and a medical assistant. And that medical assistant who's employee number two has been by my side for seven years now, right? We're a hundred strong and We've been very fortunate to treat close to 20,000 patients over those years. But what I learned from that experience was that just treat people how you want to be treated and just be honest, right? Like just be a transparent leader. When someone does something bad, tell them. And when they do something good, tell them too. Um, And so I think that now as a business owner and operator in the tech world um, with Nodal, I've used that same skill set and approach, which is I don't micromanage, I delegate, right? We actually let people make mistakes. And look, Nodal was very fortunate. We did our fundraise in February of 2022, which is a very different financial environment than the summer of 2022. And as such, we actually are able to have bandwidth to allow the team members to make mistakes, but to have autonomy of their decisions. And so what I have done as much as possible is I step back to let people step in. And when you let people step in, you let them have ownership. And it might seem silly about what they're fighting for or what they want to do. But when they believe that they have a voice internally and they're part of the product, they really are part of the fabric of the company. And I can say that we're now 14 people strong. I've yet to take a salary and I refuse to do so until we're cash flow positive because I never want my compensation to hold back the next hire that we need to make, especially in this financial economy that we're in. But more importantly is I want to support all the employees. And so that's been my my goal. Um, I started Nodal by saying that I'm the storyteller in chief. It's my job to keep the lights on and to let the workers work. Brian, thank you for making time to be here today. 
thank you for having me. And look, thank you guys for everything you're doing. And we look forward to you exploring Nodal and seeing what we can do to help others. It was awesome having Brian on to the show. Uh, he really breaks it down. You know, I love having an inside look at the healthcare system in particular because it's so hard to understand from the outside. And I thought he pulled back the curtain a little bit today. If you liked what you heard, please look us up with a like or a five-star review and feel free to share with a friend. You can find me on Twitter at MPD. And to hear more of my conversations with innovators, subscribe on YouTube or any major podcast platform. Just search for innovation with Mark Peter Davis.